So if you would, if you have a Bible, go ahead and flip there. Um, I'm going to read uh, the first section that we're going to study today, and then uh, we're going to pray that we'll, we'll kind of start it off. Um, before we get too far down the way, what I, I want to be really honest with you that this morning, uh, I've taught, this is like my fifth time teaching, right? Woo! Some of you were excited about that, like, fifth time, geez, it feels like it's been more than that. Uh, I, I'm going to share with you guys a little bit about uh, my past, and specifically a moment in my life where not my whole world kind of unraveled, but I was kind of thrust into a time when I was just really hurt and struggling through um, how to put back the pieces of my life after they had kind of been shattered by a, a situation. And so I, I want to share that with you and just know that when I'm sharing this, it's not at all to make anybody feel as though, um, I guess I don't make anybody that, that hurt me in the past feel as though they need to be guilty about that. But I also want to be honest about the hurt that I felt. And so um, I'm, I'm going to talk, I'm going to kind of talk in generalities, but I also uh, just want to be humble in saying that um, I think a lot of us have experienced difficult times, hurt by someone else. We've kind of had to piece through our lives after our lives after that goes on. And so I'll get more into that in a little bit, but I just wanted to set you up to know that I am going to share that. And um, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a time that I just haven't really had a chance to, to share with you all. So I'm hoping, hoping that it will uh, be beneficial to you. Here we go. Chapter 23, verse 1. Uh, then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do, for they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers." And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. Jesus, we come before you. And we recognize that in our lives as human beings, some of the greatest hurts we will ever feel are those at the hands of people who we trusted to lead us, um, to take care of us and to shepherd us. Whether that's a family member or a leader in a church or a teacher, whatever it may be, Jesus, we know that some of the greatest hurts we ever experience are from the hands of those that we entrusted and Jesus, I pray for anybody in here, God, who has gone through a season where a church leader, um, through a fall of leadership, has hurt them. Um, Jesus, I pray for healing. I pray for hope. And I pray for an awareness, Jesus, of our roles as people in the church. Our role is this community of people that comes around each other and supports each other. I pray for... Um, 
just to be able to have the energy and the awareness to support those who have gone through um, what sadly so many people have gone through in our culture. Um, And I pray, God, that you would build us up, that you would strengthen us, that these moments of hurt would be healed, Jesus, and that would be um, lessons that we can in turn teach other people about um, what it means to follow you and lead your people. In your name I pray, amen. So in 2010, I graduated from college at U of O. And before that, for the last two years, I was a part of a church community. It was a small church plant in Eugene. We started off in our pastor's apartment, and it was this amazing experience. I was like a typical lost 21, 22-year-old guy, just like, I need people, like I need community, I'm so alone. I wasn't actually that alone, but what I really wanted was like meaning and purpose and influence. And I happened upon this really awesome community of believers, and I walked into the apartment, and I was hugged and welcomed in, and I was like, this is amazing, this is exactly what I've been looking for. And so for two years, I attended this church, and then for three years after I graduated from college, I was on staff with the church as a pastor, as a youth pastor. And there were a lot of great things about these five years, some really impactful times. I learned a lot about the Bible and how to teach scripture. I had this awesome community of friends that I lived with and worked with, and it was an amazing uh, community of people. Learned a lot about churches and organizations and how they functioned. I learned about leadership. Um, and the good and the bad of leadership. But there were also things that happened as a result of this time that were profoundly negative, that were hurtful. And I don't blame anybody for that, but I blame kind of like our overall picture of leadership within the church. What I experienced in my life was the result of several bad decisions made by people who were entrusted to lead and shepherd people. There was a lack of accountability. There was this power dynamic and there was an abuse of this power. There was a pushing out of people who don't agree with you. There was an assumption that numbers, people in in seats equaled success. And worst of all, there was this lack of restoration of people who had fallen. And we can wrap this all up in one term that's kind of become in vogue within Christian circles. It's a term called spiritual abuse. And I, and I don't use that term lightly. I want you to know that. I think that term is, is kind of thrown around or muddled when somebody is confronted about their life and a life of sin and someone confronts them about that and loves says, hey, I really want you to, to move into this new reality of following Jesus. And people go, well, don't tell me what to do. I reject your authority. But I'm not really talking about that so much as I am an intentional desire to push down people and manipulate people that you're entrusted to shepherd. And sadly, my experience was not that different from what hundreds of other people have experienced as a result of working at the church. On my Twitter feed, when I was a, when I was a pastor, I had this Twitter thing. Oh, that sounds terrible the way I said that, but I had a, twi- I had a Twitter profile. That's what it's called. Uh, and I had followed these different people, the authors that I had read. And when I left the church, I went through this really dark season, and I just pushed everything about my church and my life and my history just out the window. And I went into this dark phase of just, I don't want to go to church. I don't even know what I believe about Jesus anymore. I'm so hurt. I feel so abandoned. And then three years later, I revisited this Twitter profile that was like a time capsule of me in 2013. And I watched in horror 
as I walked through these different pastors that I had followed who had all left churches, divorced their wives, fallen into immorality or quit churches, and then six months later opened up another church and did the same thing. And I know that my experience is not totally different from what some of you have experienced as well. But my whole reality kind of started to unravel. I didn't know what was real. I didn't know what was true. I didn't know about the church. I didn't understand why it was the way that it was. I couldn't put together these pieces of this fragmented reality. How could an institution that is supposed to be about mercy and grace and truth, this wake of damage behind it? And what are we supposed to do now? And so in following Jesus, I was really fortunate to have a great support group around me that came around me and I started leading a young life and I led to this great healing in my life. But for, the, for three years, I just wandered in darkness. And I know, like I said, that this is not an isolated experience for me. And I want to say this up front. If you have been hurt by a church or church leaders in any institution, any point in your life, I want you to know that I love you. And I'm really sorry that that happened. I'm really, really sorry that that happened. That was not what was supposed to happen. People were entrusted to take care of you, to shepherd you, to lead you, to help you. And if there's trauma in your background related to church, just know that you're not alone. We've been through it. And you are loved and cared for. And as a part of this church, we want to come around you and support you and help you. You're not damaged goods. You're not abandoned. We are here for you. And sadly, the reality of this is, it doesn't just happen in church leadership. It happens in families. It happens when parents decide that they just want to will their children into submission instead of treating them like people that God has called you to steward and love. And the damage that that creates and the wound that that creates is so deep, especially when you care so much about something and you put so much of your effort into something, to have it kind of shattered really leaves you really broken. And so we have to ask this question now as we move into this next season and as we develop our healing process around what it means to be a leader, that we have to ask ourselves, what does it even mean to be a leader? What does it mean that I'm a teacher and a leader in the church? What does it mean that Brett is a pastor and a leader in the church? What does it mean that Michael is a worship leader in the church? What does that even mean? And how can we develop a healthy perspective around what it means to lead and help and serve people? Let's look at Matthew 23. We're in a section of scripture where Jesus is bringing an indictment against the Pharisees. And what goes on after the passage that we read today are these seven woes that Jesus pronounces on the Pharisees. He really goes into detail to the level of their hypocrisy. And we're not gonna go into that too much today because Michael really already touched on that months ago in a sermon called The Attention We Need. And he talked about the mentality of the Pharisees and their obsession with being seen. But we do wanna talk about this section where Jesus sets up and contrasts what the leadership of the Pharisees was with what the leadership of the church is supposed to be like. And I want you to notice the audience that he's talking to. He's not just talking to the disciples. I want you to catch that. It's not as if there were these 12 people that Jesus just said, okay, now you guys are the leaders. So you're in charge now. He's talking to the entire group of people that are coming to see him. 
And he's telling them what their identity, what their life is supposed to look like, and how they're supposed to conduct themselves as people who have been given influence. So I want to ask this first question. What defines a leader? Think about what you look for in a leader. This could be a political figure. This could be a boss. This could be a teacher. This could be a pastor. But our minds are usually drawn to different external attributes or the charisma or giftedness of a leader or their wealth or their status. Our culture is built on the fact that there's this pyramid where at the top there's these elite leaders and everybody else kind of filters down to the bottom and there's this big group of people at the bottom that all just kind of like wander. Somebody lead me. The reality of it is, a lot of times what we look for in leaders are purely external factors. And what we're drawn to is not their character. We're drawn to their giftedness. Oh, they're such a good communicator. They can really draw a crowd. I don't really care about what they say, or I don't really care about what they do. I care about what they say. And it's really easy to get bought into that. And we have to be aware that a leader is so much more than just the external attributes that we give them. Let's look at our passage here. Uh, 23 verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and the disciples, that's his audience, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. And this could be referring to an actual chair or just a symbolic picture of the authority given to the Pharisees to teach uh, the scriptures and to set forth traditions and laws. Um, really quickly, I just want to talk about the Pharisees. The Pharisees are like the epitome of low-hanging fruit, right? You're like, we can go ahead and just pluck the Pharisees off and go, yeah, bad example. Whoop! See you later. But we have to have a little bit of empathy for the Pharisees. First of all, I want to let you know that it was most likely that Jesus was a Pharisee. Not in the sense of his conduct, but in the sense of his title and role. He was a teacher. He had authority. He followed traditions. He very much would have been a part of this group in some factors. I wouldn't have done what they did in the sense of their kind of like confusion within their traditions and their performance-based ideas. But it's very likely that Jesus was a part of this group. Also, the Pharisees were really noble in the extent that they were trying to create a holy society. They were trying to create a set-apart society. They were worried, like many of us are, about the greater culture seeping into Judaism. So what they did was they developed this Pharisee sect, a separate group that was focused on being holy and preserving God's word and protecting the law, all things that we would agree with. And yet what we do often is we go, oh, Pharisees, don't be a Pharisee, don't be Pharisaical, and pluck it down. When a lot of ways, they weren't entirely negative. But what they had instead done is what we're going to see here. Look at what Jesus says about them, verse 3. So practice and observe whatever they tell you. He endorses their teaching. I bet he didn't know that. (laughs) Jesus endorses the Pharisees' role and ability to teach. He says, do what they tell you to do. Okay? But, the contrast, not what they do, for they preach, but do not practice. So Jesus' first indictment of the Pharisees and their leadership was that they lacked integrity. Okay, that's the first issue Jesus has with this group. Can I get that first slide up there? Good. The leadership of the Pharisees, they lacked integrity. What you saw on the surface was not really what was going on below the surface and vice versa, okay? And here's an example. They preach but do not practice. Verse four, they tie up heavy burdens 
hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. So the second issue Jesus has with the Pharisees is that they lack mercy. In other words, they put these heavy expectations on people that were following them. They heaped it on, they heaped them on on traditions and traditions and things you had to do to appear holy and things you had to do to appear holy and things you had to do to appear holy. But they never came alongside of them and helped them and supported them. Now, it's interesting. Let's contrast this idea of these heavy burdens that the Pharisees placed upon people and contrast them with Jesus' message, message, which he says was light and easy. Right? Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light. And the Pharisees' burden was heavy and hard to bear. So he contrasts it with that. So his second issue with the group of Pharisees is that they lacked mercy. And then the third issue comes in verse five. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, but they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. So here's a few things that the Pharisees love. They love being noticed. They love being appreciated for their external righteousness. They crave it, and they built systems to prop that up. A, a phylactery was a little box that oftentimes uh, Jewish people would put on their heads. They would strap it around the side of little box on top, and inside that box, they would have scrolls and scriptures that they would have on their head, literally going back to Deuteronomy where it says, bind these words on your arm, hold them in your heart. They literally did that. And they had these fringes, that were tassels and they dangled down the side of their robe or out of their sleeve. And the point of it was to be a reminder to them of their desire to be set apart. It was just a reminder like a Catholic rosary. It was a thing that they would touch and remind them to pray or remind them of their desire to be set apart, their need to be set apart. But the Pharisees, in classic Pharisaical fashion, got the biggest phylacteries they could find and they just slapped them on their head. And they put their tassels on. They had these huge robes that dangled all the way down to the ground. And it was like, whoa, this person is really holy. And they're taking this really seriously. And although it's a funny picture, it's kind of like a tongue-in-cheek that Jesus kind of does, like a little bit of like a cheeky thing that he says. Like they have these really broad phylacteries and really long tassels, all right? But the picture of it is really interesting. It says they care a lot about holiness. And instead of having these subtle little measures of of reminders, they made them very big and ornate and made people think that they were so holy because of what they appeared like on the outside. And here's a few things that they love. They love the place of honor at the feasts. Now, it's not a matter of like extroverts and introverts, right? It's like, you know, Introverts are like, put me on the back of the wall, away from everybody else, and I want to hang out over here and just do my own thing. And extroverts are like, get me the center of attention. Like, is there a skit I can do? Put me there, all right? And the Pharisees were really apt to being like, the idea of being at a table was being at a position where you were closest to the host. If you were closer to the host, it meant that you were more important. They loved it. They loved having that position and that influence and being seen as important. And they loved the best seats in the synagogue, 
the front row. It's like always sometimes like pastors like come and they hang out. They either sit in the very far back or they sit in like the very front row. It's like, I'm the pastor. I got this own like unique space where I just kind of get to do my own thing and hang out until I go up on stage or whatever. The Pharisees were kind of like that. They liked these places of, that symbolized positional um, importance. And they loved the greetings in the marketplaces and being called a rabbi. I'm not sure that if, you, if, if Brett was like out at Kobold, he would love people walking up to him and going like, Pastor Brett, it's so good to see you. I'm so glad you're here. I was like, oh my gosh, he just has his AirPods in and he's just like, I don't want to talk to anybody. I just wanted to be alone. All right. Uh, I know Michael wouldn't, I don't think Michael, you would like that at all either. Worship Pastor Michael. It's so good to see you. Or like Reverend. I'm going to start calling you Reverend Brett. Reverend Brett. I'm going to drive by my car on my way to work and just be like, Brad, Pastor Brad, good to see you. Ah. Um, but they really liked it. Walking to the marketplaces, rabbi, teacher. Because at that point, that was a position that people had reverence for. And, it did, and rabbi could have meant, yeah, it could have meant this teacher, but it also could have meant like a royal line. It had this kind of royal um, emphasis behind it. It was all about power. They liked it. People coming up to them and clamoring around them. Rabbi, oh, it's so good to see you. Hey, I got this going. You know, oh, that's all right. It's like, it's like, it's like a celebrity when they walk at like a restaurant and everybody's like holding out these like pads of paper and they have to like sign them as they're like walking by. You're like, you can't sign all of these papers. But as they go out, that's like what the rabbis were walking through the marketplace. Everybody's like, Rabbi, oh my gosh, it's the rabbi. It's so good to see you. They went walking around with him. Um, and they liked it. They liked it. I can tell you as somebody who... Um, I think really struggles with like performance and like as far as like wanting to be seen and like like to be theatrical. If you haven't been able to tell that already, um, it's really nice to look up to you and go, "Oh man, Carson, that was such a great sermon, such a great sermon." And I'm like, oh, "Okay, all right, cool." Uh, and so it's hard because, like, I mean, many of us struggle with that, and you kind of just do that, like, really weird, like, self-deprecating thing where you, like, don't know what to do with yourself when people comment. It's like, can I accept the compliment? Are people going to think that I'm really arrogant if I do that, or do I just talk about how bad I actually am? So it's like, oh, oh, no, I actually suck, so don't give me any compliments. You know, it's like it, that, like, balance of trying to figure out, like, what that means. Um, but the bottom line was the rabbis really liked it. They liked being known. They liked having influence. They liked being important. They liked having followers on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and people talking about all the things that they say and people buying their books and publishing them. They would have really enjoyed that. And somewhere along the lines, I really feel like the church for all of its knocks and the Pharisees has in many ways reverted to the same mentality. We create a system wherein if you go down a bookstore, you can find not just the help section, the self-help section, but then there's like a Christian self-help section. And I'm like, how can there be a Christian self-help section and a self-help section? Isn't Christianity supposed to be something that's helpful in and of itself? Or these books and publishing companies and authors and all these things like that. Not that that's bad, not that it's not helpful, but I wonder if sometimes the motivation behind that is to have influence and power and prestige and conferences, and oh my gosh, this person's coming to speak at this conference, I gotta go see him speak. The truly interesting part about that time when I was working for the church was that we sort of took this group of people that was doing like things like emotional health and 
trying to figure out what they believed about Jesus. And we sort of criminalized them. We were like, oh my gosh, don't read these books. Don't follow these people. And people just beat them over the head and tear them down. And then when I came back to my Twitter profile five years later, it was like, oh my gosh, these people are still following Jesus. And the people that were criticizing them are not following Jesus anymore. And I'm like, that's weird. It's almost like they were doing the wrong thing the whole time. And it's hard because we're human beings. And human beings inevitably fail each other. If I get up here on stage and teach about be merciful, be kind, love your kids, and they go over to my house and I'm just yelling at Leon, like I'm just like, Leon, pick up your trains! You know? <laughs> Why could you ever pick up your trains? You know, things like that. You're like, ah, oh, that seems a little bit hypocritical to me. I don't know about that. Um, and the reality was the emphasis we place on is external because like a lot of you don't know my life outside of here and how I act when I'm at work or how I act when I'm at home or when I'm in traffic and I'm late. And for some reason, nobody else knows that I'm late. It's like, I'm late. Get out of the way. Um, and it's hard because I feel like that's the story really for all of us. This is an indictment of leaders. But I feel like the term leadership we make it this elite group, and I feel like it's actually just anybody who has influence over somebody else. It could be a pastor, it could be a teacher, it could be a CEO, it could be a mother, father, coworker, older sibling, however you want to put it. If you have influence over somebody else, you're a leader. So look at what Jesus says here as we switch gears to this next section. He contrasts with what the leadership is supposed to look like in our society. He says this. But you are not to be called a rabbi. I thought rabbi was a good I'm like a teacher. Like, I'm supposed to be called a teacher? Like, I'm not supposed to have that? I was like, no. Get rid of the title. Stop your obsession with the title. For you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Again, he's not tearing down the institution of fatherhood. He's saying, don't put your emphasis on having a position of power. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. And then he goes on to say these next two verses, and I want you to hear them very specifically, that we need to heed these words. 11, the greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Those aren't commands. I thought we were supposed to be humble. Yeah, those aren't commands, though. They're statements of fact. He is telling the crowds of people that the greatest among you is going to be the servant. Oh, I got to go be a servant so that it can be great. That, that doesn't work. Okay? And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. One of the weird things that came about in this time of following Jesus was, everybody was always telling me to be humble. And what it meant was, don't desire to be a position. Don't follow your giftedness. Be humble. I'm the one in power. You got to be over here. And so what I started to do was serve a lot. Because I was like, if I serve a lot, they will think that I'm humble. And then I will get the position. <laughs> and it worked. 
That's exactly what happened. I was an intern. They're like, oh, Carson's such a servant. Like, he's got such a great, uh, he just wants to do all this stuff and really seems to just have no life other than being here at the church all the time. So let's just make that his job. Um, and so I did that, and I had that motivation, and it worked. I was promoted from uh, lowly volunteer to a lowly intern, which meant that you worked the same hours as a pastor, but you made like 20 bucks. Um, and then I was promoted to a pastor, which meant that you made a little bit more money and had a lot more responsibility and could be like, you know, fired if you didn't do your pastoral stuff. Um, but b- below the surface, though, that wasn't the reality. I was not this humble, servant-minded person. Instead, I had manipulated the Christian system to be like, since people seem to only care about my external actions, if I just appear externally, like I'm a servant, show up to church early, get here, set up the chairs, smile, oh, it's so good to see you, oh, how's it going, how's life, great. Be super loving, be super pastoral, fit that role, that eventually they would promote me into that position. And they did. But I, I hacked the system. I wasn't actually being humble, and I broke the system in the sense of, like, I thought that this idea was a a command. Be humble and you'll be exalted. What it actually means is it's the reality. When somebody who's really prideful falls, people go, yeah. I think back to, like, Joseph McCarthy and, like, the communism, like, the Red Scare, when he finally was called out for what he was doing. Everybody was like, yes, tear this guy down. Finally, somebody stood up to him. The prideful are humbled. The humbled are exalted. It's a reality. It's a, it's a statement of fact. So as we close, it's not going to be anytime soon, but you know, <laughs> uh, anytime a pastor says that usually means there's like 10, 15 minutes more in the sermon. I'm just kidding. It's not going to be that much. Well, maybe. All right, here we go. Uh, there's five characteristics of leadership or or issues about leadership that we need to resolve in the church to be healthy. And like I said, I bet everybody in here has a story about a time when a pastor or a leader or a father figure or a mentor wounded you. And you had to put back the, maybe that's just like, they told you that, oh, you can't, you can't do that. You don't have the giftedness to do that. One of the most refreshing things for me as a leader in being at Redeemers um, has really been working with Brett. Um, I know you guys know this, but I just want to emphasize that Brett's a fantastic leader, okay? He has gutted through some pretty serious stuff at the church and has never asked for anybody to say thank you or to build him up or whatever. He's worked so hard, and his family has seen it, his wife has seen it, and I've just, in the little time that I've known him, I've seen it. But you know what Brett's not obsessed with? His position. He doesn't care about it. Not in the sense he doesn't want to be good at it. It just doesn't doesn't put an emphasis on it. So much that he's willing to let people come up here and share his pulpit. There's pastors all over the world that don't do what Brett does. Because they like having all the influence and the power. Brett does it because he cares about you. He cares about you having a picture, and we care about you having a picture of a reality of the church is not just like one person up on stage talking all the time, 
but a plurality of people, like an actual plurality. Not a plurality for plurality's sake. Oh, we've got elders. But it's really like, you, really the main pastor makes all the decisions. The elders just go, okay. There's some, there's some speckled laughter in there because you guys know that that's true. Uh, and, uh, but Brett, I mean, when I first came here, I, I walked in the door and, and Brett and I had talked. And we had talked a little bit before getting here, but um, when we actually sat down and talked and got tacos, like many of you have, um, sat down with getting tacos with him. If you haven't yet and you're new, free tacos. Uh, I think he still does that even though he's doing real estate too. Um, so he uh, sat down with me and I just kind of like shared with him about my past of working the church and kind of the wounds that I had. And he didn't like say, wow, Carson, like it sounds like you really had some pride issues. You wanted to work on some stuff. Or uh, yeah, that's, you know, man, you really screwed up. There were things that I did at this church that, that I was wounded by. That, I mean, I was not in a good place either. It wasn't like I was the sparkling example of following Jesus and they fired me for no reason. Sorry, forced me to resign. There's a difference there. Uh, uh, and then I was asked to like, the next week somebody was like, hey, the guy, one of the guys that asked me to step down the next week was like, hey, want to come work at my church? And I was like, what? Um, and so Brett, so he sat down with Brett and Brett didn't try to, teach me anything. He didn't talk about like, he didn't open the Bible to some scripture and try to make me feel better about myself. He looked at me and he said, Carson, that really sucks. I'm really sorry that that happened. Five years? That's all I needed to hear. That was it. I'm really sorry. That shouldn't have happened. And there's such a genuineness about that and just an honest being like, yeah, that was hard. I'm like, yeah, you know, that was really hard. How many people in this room even just need to hear that? I'm really sorry that happened. That sucks. And so as we move forward, let's just quickly go through a few things and talk about what do we do with this leadership thing? How do we approach leadership from a kingdom perspective? And I think this is like an exhaustive list but it just gives some things to think about and consider. And I mean, don't just look at this like, okay, what are the pastors in my church supposed to do? This is for me, it is for you, it is for everybody that has any sort of leadership. If you're like, I'm not a leader, I'm like super reserved and quiet and I just wanna do my own thing. You're a leader. If somebody looks to you for leadership, you are a leader, okay? If you have a younger sibling and you're an older sibling, you are a leader. If you are a mother or a father, you are a leader, Okay, let's look at it really quick. First one I want to say is this. We need to define who a leader is. We can't just limit it to someone's giftedness, their charisma. Oh my gosh, you're such a leader. What they really mean is, wow, you can just really draw a crowd. That's not necessarily a leader. That's charisma. And guess what? Politics functions pretty much solely on charisma. Cult of personality. So true. No, I don't know what the guy says, but whatever. He just really draws a crowd, and I like it, all right? We need to find who a leader is. It's not just someone who has charisma. It's church leaders. It's coffee shop owners. It's mothers. It's fathers. It's CEOs. It's teachers. It's workers. It's team leads. It's volunteers. Kids, volunteers. And it's older <laughs> siblings and so on. Two, we need to define what characteristics we value in a leader. Is it charisma? Is it power? Is it success? Or is it integrity? They actually do the things they tell people to do. If I tell my kids in my classroom, hey, you can't have your cell phones out, put them in your pocket, put them in your locker, turn them off and away, and then when the Mets game's on, I'm like, 
it, it's hypocritical. It doesn't work. How can, I, how can I ask them to go there with me? And I'm like, uh, I'm going to not follow that. Okay? That's a simple kind of like rudimentary example. Um, do we value that mercy and that integrity? If the Pharisees had an issue with that, then what is our call as leaders, and in an overarching sense, to have integrity, to be who we say we are, to love people? I think a lot of the reason why pastors, a lot of pastors have fallen from their position is because they valued that power they had so much, but they lacked integrity. Well, they lacked mercy. They just simply were abusive with their power. They would try to will people through influence to do the things that they wanted them to do. So many people have fallen because of that. And I'm not trying to characterize that. I also just want to say there's a lot of awesome, great pastors who are doing great things. But the ones that I've seen, that I've studied, that have fallen, it's a lack of mercy. And then it's just a lack of humility. I like my position. I like having power. I like telling people what to do. I do the things that are always right. And people around me that support me tell me I'm doing the things that are right all the time. No one holds me accountable. We have to have that as part of our characteristic as well. Number three, we need to evaluate our hierarchical approach to leadership. Does the scripture say that leaders are more valuable? No. It's not a matter of value. That's one of the big things that's been twisted in our culture, right? Leaders are more valuable. We need more leaders. There's not enough leaders. Or we like literally think that they're worth more money. If we say that they're equal value, why do we place them in positions of prominence? Be that in our church or our Twitter feed or our hats or our bookshelves? In eight, verses 8 through 12, he's talking to future leaders. He's telling them, listen, I'm not just talking to the disciples. I'm talking to everybody in this crowd. He thinks everybody in this crowd has, should embody these characteristics. And so I made a little, well, actually, Michael made this pyramid for me. Let's see if it, if it panned out. It's like later on. Ooh, all right. So here's like our conventional approach to leadership in the church. There's pastors, teachers, parentheses. Uh, there's staff and leaders, deacons, elders, and et cetera. There's volunteer leaders, and then at the bottom, there's attendees. And I, Michael and I were like, it's not the best word, but I was like, whatever. But it's okay, because you're going to find out what I'm going to do in a little bit. All right? What Jesus actually says is, flip it upside down. And then blow it up. Get rid of the whole idea of the, the hierarchical approach. Forget about it. Am I better because I'm teaching the Bible? No. God's given me a gift to teach scripture. He's given you a gift too. So it's not a matter of value. We have to stop valuing positions and people in those positions as being greater than. Now, there are unique roles that come with these things, and honestly, the Bible warns people, says, don't let many of you become teachers. It's like, if you can, try to avoid doing that. All right? And me and the fellow middle school teachers would all say, amen. <laughs> uh, but also, it's just the reality of the fact that we're going to be held accountable. When I say stuff on stage, it doesn't just go disappear. It goes onto the internet and goes around, and people can tweet it and morph it and twist it, all right? Take it out of context. Forget about the achievement culture that's built into our culture to climb the ladder, to move up to the next social class. We have to remove ourselves from that idea. And accept the fact that Jesus calls everybody in the church to an equal position because you're all believers. Not a status and a power structure that we 
easily go to because that's what the world does. I don't know if you know this, but the church is not supposed to look like the world. You remember that? The world says there's a CEO and there's staff members and we go down the line, the person at the top is the most important. So the church says, oh, sounds good, we'll do that too. Pastors are at the top and then just kind of trickles down from there. It says, forget about that. So don't even turn the pyramid upside down, just get rid of the pyramid entirely. And the last two here, it's okay to hold people to a high moral standard. Okay, Jesus does that. It's not wrong to hold people to a high moral standard, but when they mess up, do you show them mercy? Do you show them love? Do you help restore them? One of the things the church has done that is, is kind of odd, not the church is odd, but some churches have done, is the person gets removed from that position and then they kind of are out in the pasture. It's like, okay, see you later. The church should then, what they should do is if that person falls, they should wrap them up and go, oh my gosh, I love you, I care about you. What can we do to help just restore your walk with Jesus? Not restore you to a position, but restore you in your walk with Jesus. And so they kind of kick them out the door and go, figure it out. That's not fair. If we're going to say that leaders have to have integrity and mercy and humility, then that means when the person falls, the body has to, has to show them integrity, humility, and mercy in response. Verse 5. Or verse 5. <laughs> uh, and we must always be on watch for hypocrisy. This mask wearing, this false culture, this pretending. As I close, I want to wrap up with this idea. I simply want us to understand the fact that hypocrisy is not a leadership issue. It is a personal issue. It's an issue that everybody faces. I am a broken, flawed individual, and I do things that are sinful when I'm not at church. (gasps) It's true. I get angry. Okay? I sit down on the couch and get on my phone and watch baseball. My wife's like, can't do the dishes? And I go, (laughs) And I go, okay, well, I'm going to serve. All right? My heart's not there. I'm not thinking, oh, my gosh, my wife's going to be so blessed when I do these things. I'm so happy to help her out. I'm like, let's just get this done as fast as I can so I can get back to watching baseball and sit on the couch and checking out from reality. That's not right. It's hypocritical. And I'm honest about that. The things with the church, like, I messed up. As a young leader, I did things I shouldn't have done. I was critical. I was bitter. I was angry. I desired a position over everything else and power and the influence that came with it. That wasn't right. But it also wasn't right the way that I was treated either. I was a product of a culture that sadly has hurt many people and a system that has hurt many people. How do we avoid that from happening? Church, we have to understand that the power lies not in the position. The power lies in the fact that each one of you has the Holy Spirit inside of you. And God has called every single person in this church to use the gift that God has given them. Whatever that may be, it could be teaching, it could be pastoring, it could be mercy, it could be humility, it could be tongues, it could be interpretation, whatever you want it to be, prophecy, healing. And those gifts are to build the church up together. One gift is not more powerful or more emphasized than the other. We have to know that. So my prayer for us is that we would consider that and know that, be on guard for hypocrisy, 
value your leaders, care for them. They carry a load that's a little bit different, but doesn't mean they're any better. It means they need a lot more love. Leaders are fragile. It may not seem like it, but we are. So let's pray. Jesus, we are so thankful that you, God, give us a new system, a new way to be, a new culture to be a part of that doesn't look like the world or value the things of the world, but instead values the things of you. And Jesus, I pray for humility. I pray for us to be on guard and watch for the subtle pieces of hypocrisy that all too often creep into our lives for all of us. I pray for anybody in this church that has been hurt or wounded at the hands of a leader, be that a father or a mother or a teacher or a boss or a coworker or an older sibling or a pastor, teacher. And I pray, God, that you would grant them the strength to be vulnerable, to share that hurt with each other, and that you would give us the words to speak into that, Lord, as believers, that when we hear those things that come to us, we wouldn't try to shove them away or put them away or suppress them down. We would do simply that simple truth. I'm really sorry. Give us mercy with each other, Lord. Grant us humility in the ways we serve each other. And we have integrity and we be who we say we are. And guide us into your truth, Jesus. We're so blessed to be your people. We're so thankful for the, for the gifts you've given us in this body. Lead us in this next season with hope, with anticipation, and with a love for each other. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs>